Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, Against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again acknowledging the unspeakable privilege that we have as your children to approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because of anything that we have done, but for Jesus' sake. And so we come now to hear from you and ask that you would speak to us through your word, through this weak preacher, that the Holy Spirit would empower the preaching and the hearing of your word. So that we might come to a better understanding of who you are. A deeper relationship with you and with each other. And so that we would be transformed. And in that transformation, that the gospel would be proclaimed here in Bakersfield. And to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. And for his sake. Amen. Well, the title I decided to give this psalm. After studying it for the past week is, for obvious reasons, the song of the angry. And it's obvious because the theme of this song is very clearly anger. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about anger over the past week. And and what I'm going to say this morning just as a caveat, we're going to barely scratch the surface on what could be said about anger. So if you feel like, "Oh man, that wasn't enough." I totally agree. It's not going to be enough. But hopefully it, it's enough to get you thinking along the right path. But as I've been thinking about anger, Over the past week, I couldn't help but look at anger in my own life. And as I did so, I was reminded of the very first time that I ever felt deep anger. The first time I ever really felt that way was on September 11th in 2001. And as I'm sure that most of you can, I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard the news. I was actually in high school, believe it or not, getting ready for school, sitting at our dining room table, um, getting ready, eating breakfast. And I heard my sister, who was listening to the radio upstairs in the bathroom, tell my mom, Mom, you need to turn the TV on. Now, growing up, we never watched television while we were getting ready in the morning. So I knew it must have been something important. And I remember my mom, um, as she turned the TV on, how I sat and watched in horror over what was happening. I mean, I literally felt sick to my stomach. And my blood seemed to boil with rage. Now, obviously, I was grieved as well, but it was a weird mixture of both anger 
and grief. But the anger seemed to be most predominant. And that was the first time I'd ever really felt that way, that kind of deep anger. But I haven't just experienced anger over big injustices like that. I've also experienced anger over smaller things. I mean, I still remember in high school how angry I was when I found out that someone had intentionally, physically harmed one of my brothers. And it was completely unjust. It was entirely unfair on their part. And so when I found out, I wanted to rip that person's head off. I mean, I literally had daydreams about physically wrecking that person. Now, I'm not saying that that was good. I'm just saying that's how I felt. But to an even lesser extent, I experience anger all the time, almost on a daily basis. For example, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I get angry when I'm in traffic. And you can ask my wife about this. When I'm driving, attitudes and words come out of my mouth that oftentimes shock me, that scare me. A little bit, especially if I'm stuck in traffic and I'm late for an appointment. That's when I really get upset. Or do you ever just get upset because your plans are frustrated? Because you're trying to get something done, but there's just hindrance after hindrance after hindrance. If you're a parent, I'm told that you completely understand what that's like. Well, you see, the reality is that whether we experience anger over big injustices or small injustices, for justified reasons, or for unjustified reasons, we all experience anger, don't we? So then here's the question. How are we to handle our anger? How are we to think about our anger and deal with it so that God is actually pleased with our anger? That's the question. And the good news this morning is that our text, Psalm 137, actually shows us how to handle anger. Our anger. And it does so by showing us three ways, there they are again, right? To glorify God in our anger. Three ways we can glorify God in our anger. The psalm tells us to own our anger, pray our anger, and control our anger. Own, pray, control. So, first, let's look at how we need to own our anger. Look at verses one through four with me again. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down. And wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion, for there, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, as you can tell from our text, we're not actually told who wrote this psalm, we're not given the name of the author. But just because we don't know his name or who he is, that doesn't mean that we can't know anything about him. As a matter of fact, we can learn quite a bit about the author just from the song that he's written. So, for example, we can tell that the author is a survivor of the Babylonian captivity. When the nation of Babylon conquered Israel and took many of the Israelites as captives into Babylon. And so the author of this psalm was one of those captors. He was there when Israel fell to Babylon. In other words, what he's writing about, he's actually seen with his own two eyes. And so what we have here then is an eyewitness account of those events. And so what he's done is he's taken this account and he's turned it into a song. Now, why is he doing that? Why 
is he writing this sad song? Well, he's writing this sad song so that his community doesn't forget. So that they'll always remember what happened to them. And here's what he remembers. In verse 1, he tells us that he remembers how sad they were. In fact, they were so sad that they were weeping. And why were they weeping? Well, the reason they're weeping, well, there's four reasons, excuse me, there's four reasons for why they're weeping. First of all, they were weeping because they were in captivity. And what we learn elsewhere from the prophet Jeremiah is that God had commanded them to make Babylon their new home, to seek the good of that city. And so they were saddened by that because Babylon wasn't their true home. Jerusalem was, because Jerusalem is where the temple was. Jerusalem is where God's presence was known and enjoyed. And so to be away from Jerusalem was to be away from God himself. And so they're sad, and they're weeping as they remember that they're far away from home. Second of all, the Israelites are weeping because of how their captors are treating them. Because their captors are mocking them in the disgrace of their captivity. And you see that in verse 2. The Babylon, wow. The Babylonians are telling the Israelites, "Hey, we've heard that your God is a great deliverer and that he set you apart as a special nation. So slaves, yeah, you slaves over there, why don't you sing us a song about how great your God is, about how faithful your God is to to you and to your children. That's what they were doing. They were tormenting the Israelites by requiring them to sing songs about their homeland and their God. And then thirdly, they're weeping because they remember how their neighbors, the Edomites, did nothing to help them when Babylon attacked. As a matter of fact, verse 7 tells us that the Edomites not only didn't help, but they actually cheered the Babylonians on as they attacked. In verse 7, they say, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. In other words, the Edomites were like cheerleaders watching a sporting event saying, hold nothing back, crush them, show them no mercy. Except this wasn't a sporting event at all. It was the slaughter and devastation of a neighboring nation. And so obviously, this saddens the Israelites as well, that their neighbors didn't step in to help them, but rather looked on and cheered. And lastly, fourthly, they're weeping because they remember the cruelty of the Babylonians in their victory. If you look at verse 9, we read about one of the most horrifying practices of warfare in the ancient world. And if your kids are in here, and even just for your sake, I'm going to apologize in advance for how graphic this is, but we have to go here because it's where Scripture takes us. But here's what they do. When one nation conquered another in battle, the soldiers would look for a mother who had an infant in their arms. And the soldier would come up to her, take the infant by the legs, lift it over his head, and then dash it to pieces against the stone or the walls in the city. Now this is unthinkable to us. But what we need to realize is that this was a common practice in the ancient world. And so what the psalmist is telling us here is that this is what the Babylonians did to the Israelite infants. And again, it's something that the psalmist actually saw with his own two eyes. And the memory of it absolutely devastates him. 
And so obviously, as you can see, the Israelites have plenty to weep about, don't they? None of us can blame them for their weeping. But what's interesting about sadness and sorrow, I don't know if you've found this to be true in your own life, but I have, is how quickly it can turn into anger. When we're grieving, that grief can very quickly turn into anger. And we actually see that in this psalm. We get the first hint of it in verse 2. Because how do the Israelites respond when they were commanded to sing? How did they respond to the Babylonians? Well, verse 2 tells us that they refused to sing. Instead, what do they do? They hung up their lyres on the trees. So they, they put their guitars away. They defiantly set aside their musical instruments as if to say, we won't stand for this mockery. We won't stand for this injustice. And so we will not sing a song for you. So you see, there's just the the faintest glimmer of anger in there, just just a little ember. But what we're going to see in a little while, a little later, is how that ember eventually grows into a full-blown raging fire. As a matter of fact, the psalmist's expression of his anger may actually make some of us really uncomfortable. And there's a reason for that. Because you see, most of us in the church today think that there's absolutely no place for anger in the life of the Christian. Now, I think there are multiple reasons for that. But one of those reasons, the root reason, in fact, is that we think that anger in and of itself is sinful. That's what most of us think. But you see, here's the truth. It's not. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that anger in and of itself is actually a good thing. And how do we know that? Well, for starters, God himself is angry. For example, you don't have to turn there, but Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath or anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, God is constantly angry because man is constantly sinful. And why does sin anger God? Well, because as a result of sin, God's glory is constantly being violated and his creation is constantly being harmed. And that makes God angry because God loves his glory and he loves His creation. See, you see, the reason we know that anger is a good thing is because God Himself is angry. But then think about this with me. If God is angry and we are created in His image, then what does that tell us about ourselves? Well, it tells us that He's created us as His image bearers to be angry as well. So the capacity to be angry is given to us by God. And you see, that's why Jesus, the only perfect man to ever walk the face of the earth, got angry. Now, most churches don't like to talk about this, but you can't miss it in the Gospels. Jesus clearly gets angry. And let me just give you one quick example. You don't have to turn there. But do you remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies? Well, Jesus shows up to mourn with the family. And when he sees Mary weeping, that's Lazarus' sister, we're told in verses 33 and 38 that he was deeply moved. Now, according to the scholar B.B. Warfield, I'm going to paraphrase him here, that translation is weak sauce. 
And here's why. Warfield tells us that the Greek word used by John actually means to bellow with anger. To bellow with anger. Which is why Warfield, when's the last time you heard the word bellow used, by the way? It's such a great word. Which is why Warfield goes on to say, what John tells us in point of fact, is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. Now, why is Jesus irrepressibly angry? Well, here's what Warfield says. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come to destroy, whom he has come into the world to destroy. So what John does for us in this particular statement, this is still Warfield, is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. Now, isn't that absolutely awesome? I couldn't help but read that quote to you guys. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying Jesus is bellowing with anger. Why? Because Jesus hates sin. And he hates death. And he hates the devil. And he hates the harm that they do to mankind. And he hates how they attempt to obstruct God's glory. And so Jesus is bellowing with anger. And guess what? He wants us, you and me, as Christians, to be angry like that as well. Because what is anger? Well, let me give you a definition. Anger is the moral capacity and energy to defend something good and to attack something evil. To defend something good and attack something evil. So then given that definition, it should be abundantly clear to us that anger is is inherently good. In and of itself, anger is a good thing. And so you see, that's why the psalmist doesn't hesitate to own his anger, because he knows that anger is good. And so what that means for us is that we should own our anger as well. And I think that's important for us to know. Do you know why? Because neither the world or the church seem to know how to handle anger. And here's what I mean by that. The world and the church seem to be on opposite ends of the anger spectrum. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have the world. And what the world tells you is, just vent your anger, man. As the children of Freud, they say, just vent it. Just let it all out. It's unhealthy to let all that pressure build up. So that's what the world will tell you to do. Just vent your anger. But on the other end of the spectrum, the church will tell you to deny your anger to suppress your anger. And why does the church tell you to do that? Well, because most in the church think that anger is bad. And you can't go to heaven by being bad, so therefore you can't be angry. You can't be angry about anything. Which is one of the reasons why, by the way, that the church today is so often filled with nice, spineless people. Because you can't get angry. Because anger is always a sin in their minds. So you see, those are the two ends of the spectrum. The world will generally tell you to just vent your anger. 
And the church will generally tell you to just deny your anger. But you see, what the psalmist is showing us, what the word of God is showing us, is that neither one of these is the correct response. The way to handle our anger is neither by just venting it or suppressing it, but first of all, by owning it. The first way to handle your anger is to acknowledge it and say, yep, I'm exercising the moral capacity to be angry. That's where we have to start, by owning our anger. So that's where we start, but then where do we go from there? Well, next, we need to pray our anger. Pray our anger. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me again. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joys. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Now, in these verses, most scholars agree that the psalmist is presenting himself and his people as a plaintiff before a judge. In other words, these verses unfold like a courtroom scene in which the psalmist is pleading Jerusalem's case before the Lord, who is the judge. And so in verses 5 and 6, we see the psalmist swearing himself in. It's like he's saying, if I forget to plead your case, O Jerusalem, may I lose all my musical skill. May I be cursed if I forget you and and fail to tell the truth of your woes before the Lord. So he's swearing himself in before the court. And then in verse 7, he turns to the judge, he turns to the Lord and pleads with him. He says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. So do you see what's happening here? The psalmist is praying his anger to the Lord. The psalmist is crying out to the Lord in anger. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he praying his anger to the Lord. Well, the reason he's doing that is because he knows that if he doesn't process his anger before the Lord, his anger will all too easily become sinful. I mean, haven't you found that to be true in your own experience? It's so easy for our anger to go from being righteous anger to sinful anger like that. And you see, that's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry which is a command, by the way, be angry and do not sin. So in the same breath, he both commands us to be angry and yet also warns us not to sin when we're angry. And why does he bring those two together? Why does he couple the command with the warning? Well, the reason he does that is because it's so easy for our anger to become sinful. It's so easy for our sinful hearts to take a good thing like anger and to twist it, and to pervert it. We're masters at that, aren't we? Which leads us to a very important question. And here it is. As we pray our anger to the Lord, how can we know whether our anger is righteous or sinful? Well, in order to discern that, we need to prayerfully wrestle with two questions before the Lord. Two questions. Now, Tim Keller's the one who came up with these, um, but they were just so good that I, I had to pass them on to you guys so you can stick them in your tool belt and use them in your relationship with the Lord. And the first question you need to ask ourselves is, what am I defending with my anger? What am I defending 
with my anger? And the reason we need to ask that question is because of how we defined anger earlier. Remember, anger is the moral capacity to defend something good and to attack something evil. So the question then is, what good am I defending with my anger? So for example, dads, I'm going to pick on you. I apologize for that, but it just came to me while I was writing the sermon. So here's an example. When one of your kids is misbehaving and you get angry, what good are you defending with your anger? Now, how you answer that question will determine whether your anger is sinful or righteous. So, for example, if you say, I'm angry because I want to have a peaceful, relaxing night after a long day of work, then your anger is sinful. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand why you're angry. But the good that you're defending is your own personal comfort. In other words, you're being selfish in your anger. It's not God and other-centered. It's self-centered. And so for that reason, your anger is both unjustified and it's sinful. But on the other hand, if you say, I'm angry because I see how, how sin is destroying my child, and I'm motivated to help them grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord, then that's righteous anger. Because that's the kind of anger that God the Father feels for us. He hates our sin. It angers him. And so he wants to join us in putting our sin to death for our own good. So that's the first question we need to prayerfully ask ourselves. What good am I defending with my anger? And the second question we need to ask ourselves in prayer before the Lord is what am I attacking with my anger? Because again, remember, anger is the moral capacity to attack what is evil. In other words, when we're angry, we should be attacking what is evil in a given situation. So for example, let's use the situation of when your child angers you again. In that situation, if you say, I'm using my anger to attack my child and scare the living daylights out of them so that they never cross me again like that, then that's sinful anger because you're attacking your child and simply addressing their behavior for the sake of your own comfort. But on the other hand, if you say, I'm using my anger to attack my child's sin and let them know that I love them but I hate their sin, then that's righteous anger because that's an anger that is focused on their good and the good of their relationship with God. And so as a result, that kind of anger will be fair and controlled and loving. Now, why is it so important that we ask ourselves these two questions? Well, I love what Ed Welch, who's a biblical counselor, has to say about this. He says, anger always takes sides. In other words, in our anger, we will either be on the Lord's side or on the devil's side. And so that's why it's vital that we ask ourselves these questions. We don't want to be on the wrong side. And so if we find ourselves on the Lord's side in our anger, we need to thank him for his grace in taking us there. But if we find ourselves on the devil's side in our anger, we need to repent before the Lord and seek his forgiveness, and probably the forgiveness of the person that saw or experienced our anger. So you see, it's vital that we ask ourselves these two questions in prayer before the Lord, because it's far too easy for us to participate in sinful anger, which is why the psalmist goes on to show us that we need to control our anger, control our anger. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me again. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, 
how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now in these final verses, the courtroom scene continues and the psalmist is pleading his case before the Lord and he's pleading his case by listing the injustices that were done against Israel. But what's shocking to us is the retribution that the psalmist recommends. Because what does he pray for in verses 8 and 9? He asks God to bless the person who does to Babylon what Babylon had done to Israel. In other words, he declares a blessing over the person who takes the infants of Babylon and dashes them to pieces. And that shocks us, doesn't it? And so we find ourselves asking, what in the world is going on here? What is this doing in my Bible? Well, what's going on here, although you may have missed it, is that the psalmist is praying for justice. He's praying for justice. Because first of all, I want you to notice that the psalmist is not saying that he's going to be the one to do it. He's not asking God to give him the strength an opportunity to crush the Babylonian infants. That's not what he's doing. He's not trying to take God's place as executioner. Instead, he's seeking justice. Justice from the hand of God. And so that's why he's praying in verse 8 for the Babylonians to be repaid for what they've done to Israel. Do to them, Lord, as they've done to us. They've smashed our babies' heads. Now may their babies' heads be smashed. He's praying for justice. But here's what we can so easily miss. We can so easily miss just how revolutionary it was in ancient times to pray for this kind of justice. Because historically, this kind of justice, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth kind of justice, was foreign to every other nation but Israel. Because you see, when the other nations were wronged, Their idea of justice was more like, you broke my fingernail, so I'm going to gouge your eye out. You broke my pinky, so I'm going to rip your head off. That's the way the other nations thought about justice. But that's not justice. That's revenge. And it's wrong. And so that's why God comes to the nation of Israel, his special people, and tells them, listen, you're going to be different You're going to be holy because I'm holy. You're going to be just because I'm just. And you see, that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's seeking the eye for an eye kind of justice from the hands of a holy and righteous God. He's not seeking revenge. And so you see, what this means then is that the psalmist is actually controlling his anger. I mean, don't get me wrong, his anger is white hot. Don't try to touch it or you'll burn yourself. But it's still controlled because he's not trying to take matters into his own hands. He's seeking justice from the Lord. So then here's the question we're all wondering. Can we pray this way? I mean, if you're setting up the psalmist as our example, Jason, then can we pray like that? Well, it's a great question. But you see, there's one big difference between the psalmist and us. There's one huge event in human history that separates us from the psalmist. And do you know what that is? It's the first coming 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we now live after His first coming, everything, everything has changed for us. And so because of those changes, we now control our anger differently than the psalmist did. In other words, I want you to hear this. The psalmist did nothing wrong in praying this prayer. It was a righteous prayer that, by the way, God eventually answered. But you see, because we now live on this side of the first coming of Christ, it is our duty to pray for reconciliation for our enemies rather than judgment. And do you know why that is? Well, there's all sorts of reasons, but let me briefly give you two. The two main reasons for why it is our duty to pray for reconciliation for our enemies rather than judgment. First of all, we should pray for reconciliation rather than judgment because we're not in the same situation as the psalmist. In other words, we are no longer, hopefully you know this, a part of a theocratic, that is God-led, nation-state. We're not. Now, why do I point that out? Because in the psalmist's day, if you were a believer, you were a part of a theocratic nation-state, the nation of Israel. And you see, it was that nation-state that was the kingdom of God. And so by praying for God to strike down the enemy nations, like Babylon, you were praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God. But you see, since Jesus has come, that's not the case anymore. To become a Christian, you don't have to join a certain nation-state. So what that means then is that our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other nations. Instead, it's against our own sinful hearts and the lies that Satan spews and the person of Satan himself. So that's the first reason. And the second reason that we should pray for reconciliation instead of judgment is because that's what Jesus did. And let me show you what I mean. Look at, look at uh, Luke chapter 19. Turn to Luke chapter 19 with me. Luke 19, verse 41. Now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, knowing full well that he will soon be crucified. And we're told in verse 41 that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time. Of your visitation. So here's Jesus weeping over the future demise of the very people who are going to crucify him, his enemies. And did you notice how he described their demise? In verse 44, he says that they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like what happened to Israel? In Psalm 137, and what the psalmist prayed would happen to Babylon? It does, doesn't it? And do you know why? Because Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 137. 
And the reason he's doing that is because he wants us to see how differently he and the psalmist respond to the demise, the future demise of their enemies. Because Jesus doesn't call down a blessing on those who will do this to his enemies. Instead, what does he do? He weeps. Jesus weeps for his enemies. And he prays for their reconciliation to God and to himself. So do you see what a change this is from the way the psalmist prayed against his enemies? Now, here's the question. Why the change? Why the change from calling down curses on your enemies to calling down blessings on your enemies? Why the difference? Well, the reason for the difference is the cross. Because here's what happened at the cross. On the cross, God took his own son, his only begotten son, his precious, precious son, and God grabbed him by the legs and lifted him over his head and he dashed Jesus to pieces on the ground. He let his body be broken. He let his blood be shed. And then God took the fullness of the cup of his wrath, his anger for all the sins of mankind, and he poured them out on Jesus so that Jesus was left crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you know why God did that? He did that to his own son so that he could spare us. Because for our sins, that's what you and I deserve. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be dashed to pieces under the wrath of God. But Jesus took that upon himself in our place so that we could be saved. And so you see, if that's how God has loved us in Jesus when we were his enemies, then how much more should we now love our enemies? How much more should we now seek the good of our enemies? Because our enemies will never owe us. No matter how much they sin against us, they will never owe us as much as we owed God. And so if that's how God has loved us, then that's how we should love our enemies as well. So do you see how everything's changed? Jesus has changed everything. Now that doesn't mean that this is easy. It's never easy to absorb the wrongs that someone has done against you. It's never easy to love someone when they've grievously sinned against you. And it's certainly not easy to control our anger. But you see, because we're united to Jesus, because his Holy Spirit dwells within us, we can now learn how to grow in this. And remember, Jesus did all of this perfectly. First of all, in our place. But then secondly, so that he could show us by example how to be angry in a way that glorifies God. So you see, brothers and sisters, this is how we are to handle our anger. We're to own it, to pray it, and to control it. And you see, the only reason that we can handle our anger this way, in the midst of a world filled with evil and injustice, is because we know that Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes, he will come in anger to judge. And with his anger, Jesus will rid the world of sin and the devil and sickness and death. He will eradicate everything that makes us angry in this life. And then 
he will make all things new so that there will be no more need for our anger. Because on that great day, God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's why we pray together. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we rightly deserve to be objects of your wrath, to be dashed to pieces, crushed under the weight of your holy and righteous just wrath for our sin and rebellion against you. And yet we're thankful that you sent Jesus, your only begotten Son, and you dashed him to pieces in our place. You poured out your wrath and anger upon him, the the wrath that we deserved, so that there is no more wrath left for us. Father, we rejoice in that. And we pray that we would be a people who know that anger is a good thing, who, who see your anger and see the anger of your Son, and know that you have created us in your image to, to be angry as well. And yet, Father, help us also to be quick to acknowledge that we need to pray our anger before you because it's so easy for us to slip into sinful anger. That's why you tell us to be slow to anger, even as you are slow to anger. And Father, we, we pray that we would learn how to control our anger, how to exercise self-control in every area of life, but particularly anger. So that, Father, we pray quickly and readily for reconciliation of our enemies, both with you and with ourselves, Father, and not ultimately their judgment. We're so thankful that you have shown us your grace, shown us reconciliation in the gospel, and we pray that we would carry that reconciliation into every relationship that we have. And Father, we pray that as a result of that, your name would be declared here amongst us and in Bakersfield and in California and to the ends of the earth. We love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name, the wrath bearer who took away all of our sins and all of your wrath. Amen.